Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be looking at chapters 11 through 15 of Confessions of a Crap Artist. This book was written in 1859, but it wasn't published until until 1975, becoming one of the last novels that Dick published during his lifetime, although one of the earlier ones he wrote. It was one of a series of mainstream novels he wrote in the late 50s and early 60s, most of which have been since published um, and published after he died, but this is the only one of this series published during his, his lifetime. As I talked about in the previous two episodes, this novel is really about the, uh, a man, Jackie Cedar, the titular crap artist, who is interested in conspiracy theories and weird ideas and Atlantis and, and you know, whatever quote-unquote crap idea someone has, Jackie Cedar is willing to consider it and look at the evidence. He does come off as a kind of scientific guy, but it's kind of like his brain's so open, his, his, his mind's so open, his brain's fall out kind of situation. Um... But it's also most. It's also about his sister and his brother-in-law and and a couple that they meet. So his sister is, is Faye Hume, married to Charlie Hume, and they meet this couple, the Antilles, a, a younger couple. And it's really about their relationships, and it's really much a criticism of the middle-class bourgeois relationship. Now, there's one theme I, I want to talk about in respect to the crap artist part of the story. It's not a huge part. This really is a mainstream novel about a. a a divorce and a, and a not even like well a divorce and a, and a and a man driven to suicide by by a marriage so it's really a criticism of marriage but there is the the titular crap artist stuff so um, there's a reason Dick focused on that um, in the title maybe because it made him sound more science fictiony or put him in that kind of science fiction realm which is what he where he's used to publishing but anyways there's a moment where he calls like the pulp science fiction magazines, pseudoscience magazines, right? And, and I often read this just as the character taking this stuff seriously as science. Um, maybe not fully credited science, but as science nonetheless, not as fiction. Um, but I just read this interesting biography of Astounding Magazine called Just Astounding, and it focuses on Asimov, Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and, and John Campbell. And what I didn't know, of course, I knew L. Ron Hubbard's connection to Dianetics and that kind of pseudoscience, but I didn't know how much John Campbell was influenced by that and how much he promoted that in the 50s. So I think it's kind of maybe Dick, who wasn't published in Astounding except one time, you know, he may have been poking fun at the turn of these magazines, particularly Astounding in the 50s towards uh, kind of quirky scientific beliefs. There's even a scene in this novel in which our character enters into one of this like a club of this cult club meeting and they're doing kind of an auditing thing very much like you know what Dianetics asks you to do where you kind of I don't really know how it works I've haven't looked at that in years but it's my understanding is that there's there's kind of a process of asking questions interrogation called auditing that goes on in that and that's taking place in the novel although it's not identified as such so I just um wanted to point that out so um, where we've been in this novel up to this point is um, we learned how we learned the nature of Faye and Charlie's relationship, which is largely a material one. It's one based on Faye's goal to have a perfect 
ideal suburban lifestyle. And her pursuit of that means she's going to plow over any man, anyone else to get to that. Uh, she finds people basically replaceable. Um, when she doesn't want to do housework, she finds her brother to do housework for her. But more importantly, when Charlie has her, his heart attack and that relationship is more and more fractured, she just seeks out Nat and Teal, who despite being married, she's perfectly willing to try to break open that relationship in order to get Nat for herself. So that's the kind of woman she is. It's it's very much a pretty bitter, sarcastic, harsh examination of marriage in the 1950s. It's a theme Dick explores so much in his science fiction. There's not that much here that surprises us, perhaps, but it 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 is important that the one mainstream novel that he published focuses on the, these themes, themes that he comes back to so often in his fiction, in his other his science fiction. So Charlie had had a heart attack. He wakes up blaming Faye, and he spends this entire part of the novel, chapters 11 through 15, in the hospital bed, uh, waiting to get well enough so he can seek his revenge against the wife who, who somehow conspired to get his heart to fail on him. Um, but uh, the, the chapter 11 is, is third-person narration. I talked about the narration before in the previous episodes. Suffice to say, there's no consistent narration. There's two alternating first-person narratives we get, and we get a third-person narration that floats around the story, telling, you know, filling in points of view that those two first-person narratives don't give us. Um, this one is, this particular chapter is in third-person narration. It's mostly from the perspective of Nat and Teal, or it kind of looks at him. And he's, since the since the heart attack of Charlie, Nat and Teal has basically moved in with Faye Hume and, and filled in for, um, you know, filled in for her husband. And the question is, why does Faye um, like him? She doesn't really fully understand him. Um, but a lot of it is tied to perhaps instinct or or just an idea she has in her head about the need to have people fill particular gender roles. Quote, he thought, actually a human being is an unfolding biological organism that's every so often gripped by instinctive forces. He can't perceive the purpose of these forces, what their goal is. All he's conscious of is the stress they put on him, the pressure. They force him to do something, but why? He can't tell at the time, perhaps later. Someday I may look back and see exactly why I got involved in Fate Human, why she risked everything to get involved with me. He's a bit confused, and he's going to remain confused, although the path's going to lead him to basically be Faye Hume's replacement for, for her husband, Charlie. But it's never clear why it happens. It's, in fact, one of the final images we get of Nat, we'll talk about this in the fourth uh, part of the series, is him on a train without any, uh, you know, a train. The metaphor of a train, right, is you can't get off it, and it only goes one way. Um so uh, Faye and, and, and Nat drive out, you know, for a night on the town. And she kind of tests his masculinity a little bit by, by giving him outdoor challenges, you know, things like he has to you know, climb the rocks and, you know, and do the beach stuff and all, all the kind of outdoor stuff. And she, she's kind of testing if he can hand, fill that role as well as Charlie can, because Charlie is a bit of a jock and, and a bit of a kind of a, a typical 1950s husband, I guess. Nat's more of an intellectual type, so she's testing his masculinity whether she can fully fill it, fill it in. And then she goes to discuss her, you know, her relationship, even talking about her, her diaphragm and things. And she wants to know, she's demanding basically to know why she still, well, he wants, to, sorry, he wants to know why she likes him so much. And she really, is, he's trying to interrogate this question he had before, like, is it just instinct or is there something else driving this? relationship and he demands to know why she likes him 
And it really does seem by this point in the story that she's just after him as a placeholder, as something to consume. She, she almost like wants her soul, his soul and everything. She wants full total devotion of Nat. She doesn't care about Nat's dreams. He wants to go to school. He wants to become a lawyer. He's trying to get a history degree. But none of that is going to matter. In fact, when he talks about getting his degree, she says, you know, I tried it. I got a degree and it didn't get me anything. It's not going to help you either. Why don't you just get a full-time job in real estate and you'll be able to support me, support family. And, you know, this is what he thinks. Quote, the message is clear. She wouldn't make any attempt to put me through school. She wouldn't permit any drop in her standard of living. She wouldn't even be willing to leave Marin County or her home. She would want, expect to go on exactly as she is, but with me instead of Charlie as her husband. In fact, she would get everything she's gotten from Charlie, but without Charlie. He's the only part she doesn't care for. She'd like to have me in his place, but everything else the same. We wouldn't have a combined life, a mutual life. I'd simply be fitted into a slot from which Charlie got jerked out of. I'd enter her life and occupy a certain area. I mean, kind of a weird take, I guess. This sounds like a weird take on like invasion of the body snatchers, right? But instead of communists coming in and taking over people's soul, it's, you know, just the replacement husband, right? Like the husband is a role that one fits into. It's not, they're not individuals. And the, of course, this is the critique of the mass culture of the 50s made by the countercultural types. Um, and then he realizes at the end of this chapter that that although he's attracted to Faye and, and for a variety of reasons that he, he's not that very good at articulating. So we don't fully understand why either. It has something to do with her, her kind of the, her strength of her personality that he's attracted to. But he realizes that that she's a square and, and that's the exact term she uses. And he doesn't really understand why he's interested in a square because he is also Nat's the kind of person when we first meet him, we'd expect to be someone who would fill in more of the role of the countercultural force, right? The intellectual against the suburban housewife. Um, so in chapter 12, we switch to first person point of view with Jack Isidore. In fact, whenever we meet Jack Isidore, we get the first person narration. The book is Confessions of a Crap Artist after all. And it's here we goes to this cult meeting UFO cult meeting at this woman, Mrs. Hambro's house. And we get this weird scene where, which really does resemble kind of a Dianetics auditing session, it seems to me. But we also learn that they're trying to predict the end of the world through some kind of weird collective meditation process. And different people are able to nail down different parts of the date where the, where, when the world will end. And Jack is given the job of, of determining the year. And so, by, you know, at this part of the novel, we get to an actual date where Jack becomes convinced the world will end. It's like April 24th, 1959, he thinks is through some kind of scientific conclusion he made. He thinks that's the day the world is going to end. She goes home and sees Faye. And Faye's relationship with Jack is, is really odd because on the one hand, she, 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 he's useful to her because he helps her save money. He she doesn't need to get babysitters. She can go out more with Charlie. And she replaces, she doesn't have to do the housework anymore, right? That's the main thing for her. But she also, um, and she's kind of given total control of her household to him. But at the same time, she insults him. She criticizes her over kind of analytical approach. Um, she even criticizes masculinity at times because she's the one who wants him doing this housework. But and benefits from that. But at the same time, she doesn't respect her brother for doing that housework, right? And this is going to be an issue later with Nat, where she, Nat's doing dishes at one point, and she's angry. She's like, you know, a man doesn't do dishes. 
But um, whatever his faults, uh, Charlie is someone who's capable of, of, of collecting data and trying to analyze situations scientifically. And that's what he starts to do with the domestic situation of his brother-in-law, Charlie. He starts to record when Nat comes and collecting all the data of his coming and goings and basically proving in a long report that he prepares that, that Nat's having an affair with, with his sister. And then he goes to visit Charlie. He, he's the one person in the family who visits Charlie the most, which seems odd. It's not the wife. It's not the kids. The kids actually seem not to care that much that Charlie's in the hospital at all. The two daughters, um, they seem to have a closer connection actually with, with Jack. But he goes to see Charlie and they have this long argument about, about science and about his approach. And basically Charlie thinks he's mentally ill um, to such a degree that he puts in his will you know, money for Charlie to get mental health care later on. Now, Charlie, by this point in the story, doesn't care that his wife's having an affair with with Nat. He kind of knows it's going on anyways, and he's just out for revenge against his wife. But he's kind of thinks it's totally bizarre that Jack's been writing this long report about it. He says at one point, listen, this is all in your mind. You're out of your head. You're a psycho. Anyone who would write a thing like that about his sister is a psycho. Let's face it. Don't you know that? Haven't you ever faced the fact that you're a warped, stunted asshole type? Um, but this doesn't really deter him. And in fact, when Charlie's not interested in this report, he decides he's going to send it to Mrs. Hambro, the UFO cultist, because they seem to be interested in science. And it's not clear why he thinks he'd be that interested in it. It's just he's written this report and someone must be interested in it. And it would be people of like mind with him, I guess. That, that would be interested in such a such a document. So chapter 12 is a really kind of an interesting look at the character of, of Jack and his growing conflict with other people in his life who don't fully understand him. Early in the novel, he seems to be, actually be a welcome addition to the family, but at this point, he's it, it, his oddity and his weird behavior is coming to the forefront, and especially as he starts to get his nose into their relationship a little bit more after having written, written this report. Um, now, chapter 13 is we're back to third person narration, and it centers mostly on a fight between between Faye and Nat. And this has been building back in chapter 11. You know, their affair is 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 um, ongoing and it has and actually back in chapter 11, it's already clear they were having sex. She made some comment about her diaphragm being like having to be replaced because of some kind of decay and she's kind of blaming his sperm. It's, it's his semen. It's a, it's a weird conversation. Uh, that's just the way Faye is, I guess. Uh, but they have this fight in this chapter, which really almost breaks up their relationship. And some of it has to do with gender, where Faye's criticizing Nat for doing the dishes and, and doing kind of women's work. Um, now, it's during this conversation that she has, Faye has some kind of reflection on how she may have actually played a role in destroying the the relationship between her and Charlie, she says, because she is going to a psychiatrist to get help for her relationships. She says, suppose it's true what Charlie's always said about me and I never accepted, that I've degraded him, that I used him, that I absorbed him to get what I want. I was so spoiled as a child, I always got what I wanted. And if I didn't have tantrums and he, always, and he always had to get drunk and come home and hit me, it was the only way I could fight back. And it made him sick and possibly I want him to die because I'm through with him. I don't have any further need for him and I'm deliberately involving you with me. Broke up your marriage without any concern for, for at all for you, Gwen, or even for or even for you so that you could get so I could get you now because you're a good husband material and I need a new husband now that I used up my old one. Unquote. She basically admits well, the kind of person she is 
And and he kind of says, like, well, I don't hit you. And she says, well, Charlie didn't hit anyone until he got to me. And, you know, so you'll end up hitting me, too, is a suggestion. But she's not really open to to change. She's, she's quite reflective on this. She knows where who she is. Um, but this is at this point, Nat says, you know, I really just can't accept being the replacement for Charlie. And she she leaves. Now, he drives back home and when he. He's not, been, he's not been spending much time at his home with Gwen, and Gwen knows the affair is going on. No one's really hiding anything here. And Gwen has a has a boy over, a man named Robert Altericcio. He's It's not really important. He's just kind of hanging out there. He's having his own affair with, or Gwen's having her own affair with this Robert guy. And Nat, of course, wants him out and, you know, gets him to leave, saying, you know, like, well, I don't bring Faye here. You know, you're bringing this into our house. That's a little bit different. But Gwen, you know, she has her good reasons for, for pursuing her own own lover, seeing her marriage just falling apart. Um, and, you know, they basically break up in this. They have a conversation where essentially they break up. He, Ironically, he's almost at this point ready to leave Faye because of that conversation they had. But seeing that Gwen's already moved on, he doesn't really have anywhere to go back to. And so he agrees to drive her to Sacramento to her family's house and that to to break up that relationship. And this is going to be the last we see of Gwen in the story. We don't see much of her at all. We don't really actually get a good window into her mind or what she's about. But she's gone from the story now. And this forces Nat really back to Faye because he has nowhere else to go. Um, you know, there's a little bit of Phil K. Dick, I think, in Nat and that this kind of need to have always have a relationship and, you know, the serial monogamy that, that we see in Dick's life is reflected in some of his characters. And I, I think perhaps Nat is, you know, there's a bit of, I think, of Philip Dick and Charlie, and I think there's a bit in maybe in Jack and also in Nat. I think all these characters have bits of Philip K. Dick hidden within them. So chapter 14, we're still in the third person narration and um, Nat goes to see Charlie and basically to come clean to Charlie that he's having this affair with his, his wife. And to his surprise, Charlie doesn't care. He, he, first he knows. And he spends actually the whole conversation warning him about Faye, saying, you don't want to get involved with this woman. She's crazy. She'll suck you dry. She's, she's a sociopath. And he actually goes clinically in, in, in describing her as a, as a sociopath, not just in the casual way. He, she, he does seem to have a diagnostic handbook present right and he refers to the fact that she's seen a shrink and so he actually researched this he researched his wife's mental health and diagnosed her as a sociopath now nat's basically or, or charlie's raging at everyone at this point and, and nat leaves he's a little bit afraid you know he knows that charlie's sick and he can't really you know do too much because he's in poor physical health but he's still kind of worried that that this charlie guy may be you know he may come back and you know, get revenge on, on him, all people. Um, and now chapter 15, um, this is first person narration, but not Jack. This time we, we get uh, our window into Faye. I think this is the last time we get a chapter from Faye's first person um, narration. And a lot of this has to do with, with Jack. Um, there's actually a lot going on in this chapter plot wise, but there's a little bit here about Jack and Jack's talking about this prediction of the end of the world. And she's, uh, as always, kind of concerned in, in a, a rather annoyed way about Jack's um, proclivities and his, his weird theories and things. Um, but really what's more concerning about 
Jack for her is that she, he seems to be gossiping to Claudia Hambro in the UFO cult about it. So Claudio Hambro actually calls with, uh, you know, to talk to Faye about this report that Jackie Souter made, which had all the details of, of her affair with, with that. So she actually asked Nat to go deal with it. And so she's already got Nat running errand, like these annoying errands for her about her personal pride. It, actually, a lot of this has to do with like the gossip of suburban communities. That's a whole subplot of this entire novel. But she asked Nat to go, you know, buy this journal of her brother's, her brother's journal from, from these crazy UFO cultists. And he leaves to do it. He just kind of, you know, does whatever she says. At this point, he kind of loses any autonomy. He ever had in uh, you know to make decisions for himself. Um, Jack Jack arrives and Faye's pissed off at him for writing this stuff and giving it off to the Hambros and airing their dirty laundry in the public. And Jack's kind of cool with it. He just says, you know, I'll live with the Hambros, and and he decides to go and he picks up his stuff. And there's kind of a symbol of this like box of crap that he carries around. This it's got all his weird theories in it. He's carried around everywhere he moved. It's, it's like his most prized possession. And he kind of says that he can he can go take it and live with the Hambros, and he and he does. But she has this deep fear. Faye has, and that's what comes off in this chapter is this deep, deep fear that Faye has of of the Hambros and the power that they have over over her through knowledge and, and just how powerful gossip can be in these suburban communities. And her fear goes deeper than that. Her fear goes into into physical attraction. And in the previous episode, I talked about the description of Claudia Hambro. Uh, as physically attractive from Jack's point of view. And she looks weird, but she's really beautiful. And there's kind of a... And Jack can't, can't quite make heads or tails of, of her physical appearance, seeing her both as beautiful and kind of weird at the same time. Now, from Faye's point of view, she just sees Claudia Hambro as beautiful, saying she's 10 times as attractive as I. And that's never seen her before. Her magical personality, her ability to influence people. Look at how far she's gotten, how she's gotten the upper hand with me. And that was a far weaker person than I. Not only that, it's always been evident that he was the kind of man that women can easily deal with. I saw that from the start. If an ordinary looking woman like me with only average intelligence and charm could get such a reaction from him, what would Claudia get? So she's paranoid about how other women look at her, her new potential husband. Um, so that's just another aspect of her of her character. She sees these people as owners as being owned. Now, I, I'm 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 kind of wrapping up what I want to say about Confessions of the Crap Artist, but I want to talk about a kind of a concept that was a strong in like the sexual revolution in the 1960s. And Jeremy Greer did some of this work. Uh, I think it's some of it's in the Female Eunuch and 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 some of her activism in the 60s. Um, where what's this idea this idea out of feminism new like second wave feminism the feminism of the 1960s that relationships are kind of colonial right and there was some influence of kind of the post-colonial theory on feminism as I understand it you know that kind of said that that same kind of relationship between you know powerful nations and weaker nations that was more and more evident in the 20th century, you know, was reflected in in relationships, right? And so the same, the, like domination, the idea of domination of of nations or of, of the state all is rooted in the family, right? That's maybe even the first domination. And if you look at books like The Origin of Patriarchy, they talk about this idea of like, you know, the root of civilization, actually. What we understand to be civilization is patriarchy, the domination of men by, uh, of women by men. 
right? Now, Dick here, you know, he twists that. The, all the relationships in this book are are women dominating men, right? And that's the case in a lot of his fiction, right? And he's he's really running in contrast to how the feminists of the 60s see relationships where they're really rooted in patriarchy, right? I, I bet Dick would be skeptical of the concept of, of patriarchy. Um, now, maybe he's just pulling his own relationships and his own experiences with women through him into his fiction, but there's not a strong feminist critique in too many of his works in regards to family. Where we see that actually, ironically, I think in some of his earlier stories where you have the aloof husband and kind of the, the neglected, abandoned, ignored woman. Right, that happens a lot in those earlier stories, but that kind of falls away by the late '50s and early '60s, and you start to get more of these exploited, you know, men, right, ex ex husbands who get the call from the the nagging wife who wants alimony or something. So, you know, I, I think there's a conversation to be had about Dick's uh, view on women and how it maybe fits into the debates going on in the '50s and '60s, and and you know, obviously this was written in '59 before a lot of the sexual revolution criticism and the second wave feminism uh, criticism of the family came 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 through he's certainly part of the broader conversation about about the family the 1950s bourgeois family and there's a lot of other people writing about that but he may have been blinkered by maybe the feminist critique and it would be interested what he what he'd have to say about it um, he doesn't really ever have an answer i don't think in his other work and by the time he maybe was in a position to to begin to respond to these debates, he's interested in other things. He's interested in religion. He's he's has his own mystical experiences to deal with. So it's um, you know, he's it's, he's not in the right place to maybe have that conversation. But nevertheless, his work is very informed by sexual politics, and I, I think that's one reason we should go back to him and think about what he's saying because he has so much really to. You know, he's just got so many good questions about the modern family in in. 1950s, 60s America. And I think the fact that he maybe, you know, would have been a little, you know, out of sync with the, with the feminist critiques, it doesn't mean he's not saying something very interesting here, at least in my, my view, I think, because there is a broader institutional criticism that it's, it's not just men dominating women. It's like both are kind of enslaving each other here. And that might be the compromised position. The institution itself has made both the men and women less free, right? And that, that's kind of the tragic story here is that none of these characters bound in marriages are very free. So anyways, that's that's uh, just a little bit of context I'm thinking about as I was rereading Confessions of a Crap Artist this time. So anyways, but let me know what you think. Maybe I'm completely um, off base and bringing that stuff up. But uh, let me know what you, you think in the comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next episode, I'll finish up my look at Confessions of, of a Crap Artist. Thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time. To feel these changes happening in me.